Hey everyone, JD here, the main broad over at GamingBroadly.com. This episode is the start of a brand new series on violence in video games, and woo, is this a topic that punches a lot of people right in the gut. Violence in video games have gone together like peanut butter and jelly since the 1970s, when video games were in their media infancy. But just like some people have an allergy to peanuts, the violence in most video games seems to be making a lot of people downright sick to their stomachs. Just like comic books and Dungeons and Dragons, video games as a medium have been going through the moral ringer, with politicians, pundits, and even psychologists placing the blame for social ills ranging from school shootings to drunk driving, and even rickets squarely on the shoulder of video games. So what exactly is it about violence in video games that seem to rile people up so much? Are people really more likely to commit a crime just because they play a lot of Call of Duty? And why are people so dedicated to making sure video games stay violent? What's the big deal about shoot-em-ups, punch-em-ups, and stabbing simulators? Why do so many gamers think it's important for video games to stay as violent as they are? This week, we're joined by Dr. Patrick Markey and Dr. Christopher Ferguson, two psychology experts tackling the issue of whether or not video games are actually the things responsible for horrific acts of violence. But we'll get to those two in just a few seconds. As you're strapping yourself in for this wild ride down violence lane, I wanted to thank the folks over on Gaming Broadly's Facebook page. A special shout out to Tem and Haley, two folks with some insightful opinions and comments that have expanded the dialogue beyond the confines of this podcast. If you want to be part of the conversation happening over there, check us out over at www.facebook.com slash gamingbroadly and give us that old thumbs up. Like us and uh, you'll see us on your feed and you too can join in and tell me what you think. All right. Y'all ready to lock and load? Let's get started. And welcome to Gaming Broadcast, the official podcast of GamingBroadly.com. Today, I'm here with Dr. Patrick Markey and Dr. Chris Ferguson. Both are professors of psychology who have currently released a new book called Moral Combat, Why the War on Violent Video Games is Wrong. So hi, welcome to the show, Patrick and Chris. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's awesome to be here. Um, So before we get to the meat of the book, which is as entertaining in content as it is in title. Um, I wanted to hear about your history and kind of what got you on this track of researching violence in video games. Sure. Um, So Chris and I have been doing video game stuff for, gosh, over a decade now, I suppose. And I think we have different stories of how we kind of got into game research. Um, I mean, my if you look back at my earlier research, it was definitely very much examining the negative effects of video games um, of, you know, linking video games to aggression and things of that sort. Uh, but then what really changed for me in this whole debate was the Sandy Hook shooting, that after the Sandy Hook shooting occurred, lots of people used research done by our lab and other labs as suggesting that perhaps the killer in Sandy Hook was actually influenced by video games, and video games are actually blamed, to blame for these real-world acts of violence. And that kind of caught me off guard a little bit, that... The fact that they're taking our laboratory studies, which are pretty mundane, and suggesting they actually are these huge effects on violence uh, kind of shocked me at first. And it made us and a lot of people in the field kind of rethink our focus on 
video games as causes of real world violence. Um, and kind of since then, I met Chris and then Chris and I put together this book to try to take what we know as far as what's been done in the laboratory and, and what's been done in the real world and show, you know, what may be true, what may not be true and things along those lines. Yeah, and I think I think for me, um, yeah, I, I'd always been interested in violent crime, so I think I always kind of came from it with that angle initially. And yeah, I remember even going back as far as like the Columbine shooting in 1999 and all the, the furor over that shooting and whether they were influenced by Doom or other types of video games that were, were, were violent in nature. So, so I actually had been doing research in the early 2000s, actually working with inmates and you know, uh, you know, criminal populations. And I was actually struck by some comments that were made even as far back as, you know, around the year 2000 or so, where certain scholars were sort of saying that the effects of violent media on aggression and violence in society is the same as smoking and lung cancer. Yeah, these are definitive effects. Nobody has any doubt about this. And that really struck me at the time as being, you know, unusual to see, you know, people making claims of that. That magnitude, you know, particularly as Patrick was saying, kind of extending that into criminal violence um, and things like that. So I, I seem to have, you know, whether it's a a um, you know a, a positive trait or a flaw, I seem to have this fairly skeptical mind, and that the more that people tell me something is an absolute truth, the less certain I am that it actually <laughs> is. And uh, and that this kind of defined my research career <laughs> to some extent. Uh, and so that's what kind of got me interested in, in in this issue is you know what really is the data to support you know this type of claim, and uh, you know the the more I started looking into it, the the more concerned I was that. There was a mismatch between um, the data available and the claims being made. So, do both of you? Did you grow up playing video games? Do you play a lot of video games uh, in your day to day lives? Yeah, I mean, I, I grew grew up surrounded by games. I mean, I come from the era of actually even before Atari twenty six hundred, we would have standalone game consoles and pawns and things of that sort. Um, up to in television and Genesis, everything. And even now, I mean, I have a VR headset in my living room right now. So in arcade cabinets in my home. So our house is definitely a house full of gamers. The types of games we play kind of surprise people, but we're definitely in, in our household, me and my children um, are definitely gamers. Yeah, I say the same as, as actually, I think uh, my background in games sounds pretty similar to Patrick's in that I've pretty much in the same generation with the Atari 2600 and uh, and some of the standalone games that were you know, before the Atari 2600. And then, uh, you know, and then I, I kind of went through a period in my, like, teens and maybe early 20s of not gaming, you know, a lot. Uh, I think that was right about the time there was kind of like a crash in the video game industry. And, and also being a teenager, I was sort of interested in, in chasing after, you know, girls, and usually unsuccessfully, but nonetheless, you know, uh, I try to put in a little time on that. But um, so I, I think I kind of rediscovered games mostly on the PC in, the, in my 20s and, and maybe 30s. And, and right now, I mean, I, I kind of go back and forth, and I can sometimes go through, you know, periods of several months where I don't game very much at all and then I pick up a game that absolutely fascinates me like right now I'm actually playing Assassin's Creed 4 which I know I'm behind a little bit but I just love being a pirate so I, I'm playing like absurd amounts of time on Assassin's Creed 4 uh, when I probably should be doing other things like eating um, or stuff like that uh, so, so th there are some periods when I'm re really really an active gamer and other periods where I'm not uh, playing at all but uh, but I also have a 13 year old son and, and he plays a, a, you know, a fair amount of games and we play a lot of games together 
um, as well. So we're, we're, we're a pretty active gaming family as well. What is the, the main argument of the book? Like if you wanted one takeaway for someone to walk away with, what would it be? I mean, to me, always what I think the book, the main idea of the book is looking at the science and what you walk away with is the idea that video games are entertainment, that they're not, well, so far, I should say, they're not destroying the world, nor are they, you know, a cure-all to all of our problems, that they're simply entertainment. And very often, everything gets hyped on both sides. Um, so the, the negative, potential negative effects of video games like violence, addiction, obesity, are overhyped and but also in fairness the what people thought was positive effects of video games things like can it increase your iq and things of that sort that those things often tend to be overhyped as well um at the end of the day it's just a media that it's not a medium that's not necessarily changing the world for the worse or for the better if you will um you know perhaps it might have the potential to do that but at this point it really has not I think too, like you know, for me, I think one of the you know take home messages that I kind of hope people will think about, you know, particularly maybe for older adults who don't play games a lot uh, themselves, is kind of the sense of like remember back to when you were a teenager and whatever you know form of you know entertainment your generation enjoyed, you know, whether that was you know Elvis Presley or you know rock and roll in the nineteen eighties or you know or God knows what, depending upon how old you may be, and and, and kind of think back to like you know odds are most of us in our lives have lived through a time when whatever media we were enjoying was being blamed for everything from, you know, violence to suicide to schizophrenia and all kinds of other stuff. So it's kind of like a repetitive pattern. And, you know, I think one of the things that's kind of remarkable to me is how easy it is for us to forget that when we become parents or grandparents ourselves and kids today are using something, you know, new, whether that's video games or 13 Reasons Why or something of that sort. It's very quick for us to forget that, Oh, yeah, everybody kind of blamed Ozzy Osbourne for problems in the 1980s, and obviously that was ridiculous. But now, you know, Grand Theft Auto V or 13 Reasons Why or something of that sort is obviously the source of, you know, all that's wrong with kids today. And, and we, we don't, we kind of lack that historical, you know, um, you know, sort of hindsight that, you know, would, would caution us to be a little bit more careful about making these types of claims with the media our kids today are enjoying. Yeah, I remember with Dungeons and Dragons, there was a whole, I want to say moral panic that it was turning children into like Satan worshippers. Do you remember this whole era of, uh, I remember it on the news on NPC being like Dungeons and Dragons, like game or like satanic worship or something that was like so over the top. There's a great movie out there called Monsters and Mazes or, or Mazes and Monsters or something like with uh, Tom, oh God, I can't remember his last Tom name. Hanks. Yeah, yeah, Tom thank Hanks. you, Tom Hanks. Yeah, yeah. That's it's actually kind of a good, I mean, it's an 80s movie, but it's kind of a good movie, but it's really kind of hypes up this idea that, you know, if you play Dungeons and Dragons, then you're going to like develop schizophrenia and commit suicide, you know, kind of a thing. Yeah, and, and, I, and I remember because I, I played Dungeons, I still play Dungeons and Dragons to give you an idea of, you know, how big of a geek I am really. But so I, I remember, you know, going through that process and you know even my parents who are fairly savvy uh you know sort of checking in like you know kind of thing every so often you still know what reality is right son you know and you're not gonna like turn into a gnome and kill yourself today right son? there aren't any chickens in here right like <laughs> yeah that's exactly it so so i mean you, you can see i mean and, you know you can rem remember how parents sometimes get like worried about this stuff and and oftentimes forget you know, what it was like for them to have their parents come to them and, and be ridiculous. 
And and bringing up the mazes and monsters is a good example in the dungeon, the fear of dungeons and dragons. That it started off the the story of the mazes and monsters is started off as a book that was written in the eighties about a real student at Michigan State who had wandered into the basement supposedly of Michigan State and had disappeared and eventually I believe had committed suicide and people. Uh, it, this real story was it was actually a disturbed, emotionally disturbed individual who was going through issues who happened to also play Dungeons and Dragons. And the media caught up on it as if the two were connected. And then it became this huge hype, which at some point did not reflect what actually happened. And we see that a lot with video games, too, that will have sometimes a kernel of truth that might exist. Sometimes it won't be any kernels, but sometimes there'll be a kernel of truth that a person might have played video games and then suddenly the story turns and it focuses on, you know, they lived in a basement full of video games and all they played every day and it was driving their lives. And it at some point it doesn't look like the actual uh, incident anymore. And so really the Dungeons and Dragons panic is a great analogy for the video game panic uh, that's happening today. Are there any other examples of where someone took a kernel of truth with something that happened in in the world, I'm thinking of some of the school shootings we've seen and kind of expanded upon it in such a way that the actual truth of the situation got kind of buried. Yeah, I mean, I think what happens with a lot of these cases is people will sort of focus in on a minor detail and then, you know, kind of perseverate on that minor detail and kind of ignore, um, you know, everything else. I mean, I think that's, you know, kind of like what happened with the Sandy Hook, you know, shooting case. You know, did he ever play a violent video game ever? You know, probably, you know, um, but he wasn't really that active in terms of playing, you know, online shooter games. He, he was mostly playing Dance Dance Revolution, um, you know. So is there truth to the idea that he probably at some point in his past had played a violent video game? Absolutely. But people were kind of ignoring, you know, the larger picture with, with, with that case. And, and I actually was involved in, in consulting with a murder case going back a few years ago where... Um, an adult male had, had killed off a family of four. I believe it was four people uh, that were involved. His defense, um, because all the forensic evidence and even his brother turned on him and all kinds of other stuff. So, so his defense was that what really happened was that he walked in on the 13-year-old boy in that family killing off the rest of the family and then had to defend himself by beating the kid 52 times with a tire iron. Um, and so... It, you know, so the defense kind of rested on this issue of this 13-year-old uh, happened to have ADD. Uh, he had, a, you know, he had a documented history of, of you know, issues with ADD, uh, and he also at some point had played some violent video games. Uh, and the evidence suggested probably not very recently or not very much, but he had at some point come in contact with like Mortal Kombat or uh, or games like that. So there actually were experts that went on the stand saying that this kid could have done it, you know, because a he had ADD and b had played you know violent video games. So that's a good example of really kind of you know, individuals perseverating on a couple little pieces of truth, but blowing it way out of proportion, and in this case, you know, somewhat reprehensibly in the sense of trying to get a um, murderer off, um, you know, getting convicted uh, for these crimes. Fortunately, the jury did not buy that argument, and, and the individual was convicted. The, the adult male was convicted, um, you know, but yeah, so, so you definitely see these cases pop up, you know, where people are really eager to find a video game angle to blame for why people do some horrible things. Yeah, and one thing that's interesting is sometimes there's not even a kernel of truth to start off with. And I mean, to me, the the best example of that is the Virginia Tech shooting. 
And this was an unusual shooting where you had, you know, this horrific act. But then early on, a couple people suggested that, oh, he he looked like he was dressed from one of the people in Counter-Strike. And, you know, perhaps he probably played this game. And then suddenly became, oh, he played this game. And he definitely was playing Counter-Strike. And he was practicing. But then actually when the investigation comes out, what's interesting about that is he actually didn't play any video games, which is really unusual for a college kid at Virginia Tech to not have any video games. And, and even his roommate had commented that, uh, one thing they found strange about him before the shootings was that he didn't play video games, which was a normative activity. And so here you have an instance where there's no truth at all, but that story still keeps getting told over and over again as if it is true. Um, in fact, it's this big myth that people who commit violent crimes tend to, or commit school shootings tend to be uh, addicted with violent video games. In fact, one thing that's been found in our research and the research done by the Secret Service and really almost any lab you look at, when you look at how often when we actually go and, and, and do case studies on different school shooters, we actually find that only about, depending on the lab, about 13 to 20 percent of them had a deep interest in violent video games. And what's interesting is if you go into the average high school classroom and find an adolescent and look at the adolescent males, you find about 70% of them have interest in violent video games. And so what's actually interesting is not so much that school shooters are interested in violent video games, it's actually that they have a lack of interest in violent video games, that that's the telling issue with violent video games and school shootings. It brings me back to an article I read, I think a few months ago, where they actually said that a better predictor of whether someone would commit a violent crime against someone else was how much play they had as children. I could I, lack of play. I would, I would guess that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's that's actually probably what's going on with the video game situation. Is exactly what you're suggesting. Is that it's not that video games themselves are preventing people from doing school shootings. Like that. That's not the solution. It's simply that children who don't engage or adults who don't engage in normative activities, playing with peers or playing with video games or whatever is normative for an age group, very often they have underlying issues that are happening. And so if that normative activity is playing Grand Theft Auto, the fact that a person's not doing that normative activity might be a sign that there might be more issues going on in that person's life. Have you found that since there's so much information and research and media on the topic of violence in video games, did you have a hard time choosing what parts of the books to edit out? Was there anything that you had to remove that you wish you could have kept secretly? That's a really good question. Actually, I was going to joke that I kept trying to edit out all Patrick's stuff and Patrick kept trying to edit out all of my stuff. <laughs> no, I, th- I think I think we had a, you know for the most part a, a pretty good idea of where we wanted things uh, to go uh, for the most part. So I, I mean, at least you know, given my very very poor memory, I, I think that at least globally the book looked pretty similar to how we envisioned it you know going in i mean obviously there there are change there there are changes and of course the the publisher makes changes and so on and so forth but i think at least in terms of the spirit of the book things were pretty similar uh to how we envisioned things what, what about you patrick do you remember anything yeah. that we i i i honestly can't think of something else to stick in as far as the topic <laughs> that i mean i'm sure i'm sure there are definitely we could go into more detail on some topics but i mean like I said, we have everything from addiction to violence to, you know, real world violence, like school shootings to crime to obesity to the positive effects. I mean, we cover the gamut in the book of the research done that, that's been out there. We talk about the history of video game research and moral panics. 
Um, so it's hard to really come up with another topic. I don't know. Do you see a topic that we're missing? Because we could always, we, we always need a Moral Combat two. Um, Moral Combat the sequel. Yeah, we'll, uh-huh. we'll threaten the world. You better buy this book, or we'll write another one. Yeah. <laughs> no, I I loved your book. I I found that as I was reading, I would write down questions, and they were kind of like those those jerkish gotcha questions. I'm like, well, what about this? Um, but as I was reading, you actually answered in the book questions that I had written down, so I was, like, marking things out. Um, so by the end, I just had a very long list of things marked out <laughs> <laughs> that I was going to ask you about, which was actually amazing. Well, good. Then we did our job. It was so good. I was very impressed. I took notes on your style. Speaking of style, for so much of what you talk about is actually very, I mean, very serious in tone, like school shootings, um, violence, like real-world violence is, of course, a very serious topic. And the fact that you managed to throw in a lot of jokes into into the thing was uh, was really impressive. Was that a purposeful decision, or is that just something that leaks out of both of you uncontrollably? <laughs> well, we're both pretty immature, so it's easy. To <laughs> but I mean, there were times that it's hard to balance it because you're right; it's a serious topic. So, like you know, at certain times we don't joke. And I mean, I think actually for me, the most recent uh, instances that have come up that have been hard to joke about or to be serious about is things of addiction that one of the issues with video game addiction is people who truly believe they're addicted to video games or parents who believe their children's lives are ruined because of video games they truly believe this and it's a very serious important issue for them and so it's very hard to sometimes tell people about you what the research actually shows and what they might believe and so there are times that, I mean, I have found the balancing of being lighthearted um, with what I think is a topic that actually, you know, uh, uh, could, could be very interesting or very important to some people, um, that that balance becomes very difficult sometimes. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I, I think, you know, you know, personally, I have this, like, you know, pathological need to make jokes out of pretty much everything. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, I think some of it is, like you said, just kind of <laughs> bleeds or leaks, leaks is a good word for it, leaks out of us uh, and such. But but I think, you know, I think Patrick makes a very, you know, important point that with, with a lot of topics, it, you know, it, it it is difficult sometimes to find, you know, the right balance. I mean, I think, you know, we wanted the book to be fun to read, you know, to some extent. And, but, you know, we are at points talking about, you know, things like addiction, like violence, um, that is for some individuals may be quite sensitive. So, I mean, I think we, we tried, you know, we may not have succeeded, but we tried as best possible to kind of balance off the kind of, you know, tell a few jokes, keep people interested without, necessarily being insensitive to people and understanding some people may be actually struggling with some of these issues. Again, as Patrick said, particularly on the addiction issue, perhaps, um, that these are real things for them that, you know, shouldn't be made, um, you know, made, made light of. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a balance and, you know, I certainly hope that we struck it and, you know, I, I guess, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll apologize to those people who feel that we didn't. Um, but, uh, you know, <laughs> And, and also, one of the things for Chris and I is, I mean, we're, we're scientists at our heart. I mean, so we, all of our writings and journal articles, which are not necessarily page turners, typically, like you don't <laughs> really. Um, and so I think in some ways, we've kind of had all these things inside of us um, bubbling up. And so finally, we had this chance to write a book, which is geared towards scientists as well. I mean, there's over 300 references in the book, and there's original research and things of that sort. But it's, we wanted to have the balance. So it was scientific, but also 
anybody could pick it up and read it and hopefully be somewhat entertained and more importantly learn something about the video game debate. I, I think too, I mean, there, there is an issue that people sometimes could take some of these, these issues too seriously, um, you know, on the other hand, and, and injecting a little bit of humor into, you know, some of these situations can help people take a step back, you know, a little bit, you know, particularly when you kind of like think about moral panics and a lot of moral panics do touch upon serious issues, you know, like violence, you know, mental health, suicide, whatever it may be. And of course you don't want to make light of those types of situations. Uh, but sometimes pointing out like, Hey, like, you know, people thought this about like, you know, Dungeons and Dragons and Ozzy Osbourne. And it's kind of, you can kind of look back at some of the things that people said about, you know, rock music in the 1980s or Elvis Presley. And it's, it's kind of giggle worthy, you know what I mean? So I, mean, I think sometimes like looking towards the past is a little bit more harmless, I think, in a way than talking or making light of people's real situations, um, you know, today. Uh, so I think, we, uh, you know, I, I think I think what we kind of try to do is kind of like, look what happened 50 years ago with comic books, for instance. And that's kind of funny, you know, um, and that's not to make light of issues like, you know, violence in society or other types of, you know, behavioral issues in society. It's just pointing out that, you know, sometimes we can take our beliefs about how things work a little too seriously. Have you had anyone, or not anyone, but have you had any reception to the book you put out that's been negative, or has it mostly been positive, or somewhere in the middle? We occasionally get these like homemade postcards from people that start talking about video games, and by the end of the postcard, have made it into Jesus Christ and the Nazis. Um, so, <laughs> I think Patrick, you got one of those fairly recently. Is it yeah. with like the magazine? Like the cutout words kind of thing. <laughs> no, it's not quite that bad, but it's close. <laughs> so we, yeah, we get. I mean, I think most of the most of the feedback has been been quite positive, actually. I, you know, and and I and I don't mean to characterize like everybody who disagrees with us as, as you know having you know tinfoil um, head headgear, but. Um, I, I think you know, for the most part, the, the reaction has been positive. So you tend to find really kind of like two groups of people. One of the people that's is the choir. You know, it's kind of like the gamers and people, like you said, that you know already felt like they needed something to you know reinvigorate their own position. You know, uh, in defending their hobby. But but I think you know, and, and you know, I, I certainly I give you know a fair amount of you know talks in the community, and I'm guessing Patrick does as well. And a lot of those are with older adults who don't play games, and a lot of you know people. You know, they may not like games, but they are glad to have, you know, the actual information, the actual data um, that can, you know, I don't know exactly how to put it, maybe make them feel a little bit better or maybe a little bit less worried or at least feel more knowledgeable when they make decisions about, you know, what may or may not be right um, for uh, their own family. So, I mean, you... I would say the, the reception has been certainly 95% positive and, um, you know, maybe a, sm a small number of individuals uh, who, for one reason or another, are, are, you know, kind of absolutely insistent that video games have to be bad. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and, I, and I think a lot of it is the demographics. I, I think you hit on it, that it's people who didn't grow up with video games and they see video games, I mean, let's face it, video games can be extremely violent, they can be extremely scary looking for a person who doesn't understand video games. And so they see that and they think, how could these not have an effect? They have to have an effect. And if they're not willing to look at the science, they're going to disagree with you. And so that's usually what, if it's negative, it's usually just people who say, I don't believe it. Like, you could have all these studies, I just don't believe it. Um, and there's not much you can do to convince a person like that, that they're set in their ways. And so that that for the most part is the most negative reaction that, that I typically get to this type of stuff. 
Um, among scientists, though, it can be a little bit different. So among scientists, you can have people who are very angry at Chris and I for, you know, potentially bursting their bubble and their fame. A lot, I mean, a lot of scientists who do research on violent video games, they are used to being in front of the media whenever there's a tragedy. They're the first ones that get interviewed. They're the first ones that everyone turns to when there's something horrific. And in some ways, our me and Chris have been basically trying to say, like, they got to chill out a little bit. You know, there's really not data there to suggest that this is true. Um, and so we get a lot of pushback from from a certain group of scientists. So it's not scientific community in general. In fact, most scientists don't agree that violent video games are an important factor in real world violence. Um, and so we get a pushback from a very tiny vocal majority who have kind of made it their job to vilify violent video games and actually vilify video games uh, very often. Um, and so that's probably the community that affects me the most on a daily basis are my fellow scientists who disagree with us. Yeah, I remember reading and hearing a lot of reports or statements from the American Psychological Association, the APA. Has Have you come up against them? I know actually you all are involved with them. <laughs> so I don't know if that's been a thing that you've been been handling. Yeah, so so I'm actually um, um, a fellow of the American Psychological Association. I'm actually on their right now on their Council of Representatives, which is kind of like the policy making. Uh, but I just I just joined, so I'm a very very new member of this particular um, you know body. But yeah, I mean, so and, and we kind of take the APA and the American Academy of Pediatrics to task a little bit in uh, in the book, and uh, because you know they've released these kind of policy statements, which really have been kind of moral panicky, um, you know. Kinds of, of of policy statements, and there's there's lots of reasons why this sort of stuff happens. Um, but I mean, I think what we have to remember is that a group like the APA is is a professional guild. They're not they're not meant to function like objective scientific bodies. I'm not even sure that that's a real thing. But you know, certainly the APA is not that thing. If 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 these things exist, uh, you know, they exist to promote the profession. And you know, people like myself, we pay dues to these organizations and we expect them to make our lives easier one way or another whether they really do or not is debatable but that's what, that's what they're supposed to do uh, at any rate and uh, so it's, it's to the advantage of these organizations to find problems that psychologists can fix and so that's kind of the whole idea and particularly once they start making a promise um, you know then their reputation is kind of built into that you know promise so if they've been saying for decades that violent media causes aggression and psychologists can give you advice to fix this um, it's kind of hard for them now in 2017 to say whoops and uh, we kind of you know screwed this up and and so there have been a lot of problems with these policy statements that they tend to have been developed by individuals who have very clear conflicts of interest or other, you know, they've taken very public positions about video games and not liking video games or video game violence. Um, and they're not the most objective people, but they're put onto these committees and these committees create these statements. And, and, I, and I think that these groups like the APA, you know, view these statements as good for the field. Uh, and that's why they do them. Not because they're accurate. They're not accurate, but they're good for the field because there's a lot of older adults out there who are scared about this issue. 
and we can promote, you know, what psychologists can do, um, you know, about this, you know, particular issue. But, uh, yeah, well, I mean, we'll see, I mean, how things go, you know, in the future. I mean, right now, because I am on the council, a few of us have put together a resolution for the council to retire all of the APA statements on video games. But, you know, whether we're going to be successful with that, of course, is a very open issue. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of how things, you know, in a nutshell kind of work. Um, and it's just important for people to remember that, again, these are professional guilds. They're not neutral, object, you know, objective purveyors of uh, scientific fact. Yeah. Have there been instances with politicians, too, where they might say something kind of leaning towards neutral in video games, but then publicly have a very different opinion on video games? Well, politicians always tell the truth. I don't, I'm not sure what you're doing. <laughs> There's never a hidden uh, agenda uh, with politicians. I don't know what you're, what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, ab- absolutely. And, you know, and I think that a lot of that comes out again whenever there's kind of this mass shooting and, you know, politicians may see that they may have some sort of incentive uh, to, you know, politically make some hay about video games in order to, again, either make it look like they're doing something or in some cases to distract from other issues, whether that's something like gun control or mental health reform or something, yes, you know, is, is not to their advantage to, to, you know, to beat on that particular, you know, issue. But, uh, you know, even like, you know, I mean, I met with, you know, Vice President Biden with a bunch of other scholars. I mean, to make it sound like I was like personally met with him, but, you know, but I remember, but I remember him saying, you know, in, in that meeting that he was, I think he used the word agnostic. You know, he really didn't have have a strong opinion about whether video games did or did not contribute to, you know, violence in society, which, you know, is fair enough. But but it was sort of interesting to kind of watch, like, the Obama administration go back and forth and even his public statements kind of go back and forth about whether they were interested in doing something about video games uh, or not, following the Sandy, uh, you know, the Sandy Hook shooting. And then, uh, but really, the best example of politicians is uh, a fellow by the name of Leland Yee, uh, who is a California state senator who is responsible for what became known as Brown v. EMA, uh, which is the Supreme Court case where California wanted to restrict the sale of violent video games to minors. Um, and uh, so he was the author of that, um, that statement. And he was a child psychologist before becoming a politician. And, um, and of course, that effort was unsuccessful. The Supreme Court struck down the effort to regulate violent video game sales to minors, both because it was unconstitutional, but also because, you know, the, the science wasn't there. There was no real public health need to, uh, you know, to do so. But the interesting thing about him is, so, um, at least last I heard, Lee Lin Yi is now in prison for attempting to sell real weapons to an undercover FBI, or, I, I, you know, oh. they, they, yeah, so basically arms trafficking, oh. <laughs> you know, oh. rocket launchers in video games, bad, rocket launchers in real life, <laughs> Perfectly fine. Uh, so anyway, so uh, you know, occasionally politicians say one thing and do another one. Absolutely. And one of the interesting things about video games and politicians is it's the one issue that really unites both sides of the political spectrum. That I mean, in the last election, both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump have both made statements about how violent video games are bad and harmful. Hillary Clinton had had equated it to lung cancer and so forth. Like. Neither party is a big fan in general of violent video games. And probably the reason for that is, again, demographics at their age, that most politicians and let's be frank, most people who vote tend to be a little bit older. And so they're playing to their base of who they think is going to be the one voting. So coming out and being worried about violent video games is a easy way to probably garner more votes. That's not super controversial at this point. Now, as the younger generation becomes, you know, 
as they become more uh, uh, focused on politics and as they become politicians themselves, you know, this might eventually go away. Like there's no politicians worried about comic books anymore. But so we <laughs> might we might see it lessening over time. Um, are there any big names right now in the crusade against video games? I know that Jack Thompson used to be a big one, but he was disbarred recently. Now it's researchers. I think the the, the anti-video gamers, I mean, except for politicians, which come up usually, and to be honest with you, most times politicians get into is right after a tragedy. That's when you'll hear a lot of the rhetoric from politicians. Right now you're not hearing much because luckily we haven't had a super publicized school shooting type of tragedy. But if one happens again, everyone's going to be worried about video games all over again. Um, and so I think right now it's mostly researchers. And there's certainly some big names in research that are worried about it, but they're not the politicians. They're not the Jack Thompsons. They're, it's not quite to that level. Although their rhetoric can get to that level sometimes. but the, Definitely the rhetoric among some scholars is Jack Thompson level stuff. Uh, but uh, yeah, I guess the good news is yeah, it's very hard to become famous as a scholar. <laughs> Oh, oh, my heart. <laughs> it's, just, uh, it's just not as sexy as, as doom and destruction, I guess. So speaking of politics, recently there's been a lot of discussion about representation in video games. And it's, it's kind of always been there, but recently I feel like it's come to a much higher fever pitch. And as I was reading the book, I was wondering if there was a way you could argue both that violence in video games does not cause real-world acts of violence, but also that um, misogynistic or racist or very stereotypical depictions of certain groups of people could have real-life negative impacts, but maybe not in that one-to-one way. And I was wondering if you had an opinion on how you could argue for both of those things at the same time. Well, Chris can probably help you out with a study that just came out that he's part of, or at least a real analysis of a study. (laughs) What's funny is I did not know about this, and I'm (laughs) this wasn't a planted question. (laughs) Sure, sure. Yeah, very quickly, there was a a study that came out um, last year with some Italian adolescents that claimed to find a link between Sort of like playing Grand Theft Auto, which we might define as a you know, put little air quotes around sexist game, but you know, not, you know, probably both of you would agree there's sexist content in that game, um, with decreased empathy towards you know girls um, and women in in real life, um, and they got a little bit of press, and but their data was open, which means that other scholars could access the data and reanalyze it, and and myself and another scholar reanalyzed it. And uh, basically found that they kind of messed up their data in some pretty major ways and that you know, when we reanalyzed it, we were not able to conclude that there was a causative link between playing Grand Theft Auto and sort of these like misogynistic, you know, decreased empathy, you know, kinds of uh, attitudes. W- one of the things they did is they, they mixed up the random assignments. So they put, all, you know, put up many of the younger adolescents in the Grand Theft Auto condition and many of the older adolescents in some of the you know, control conditions. So they kind of mixed up game condition with age. And, of course, empathy develops, you know, it, you know, increases across the, um, you know, the lifespan. But even like taking that issue and with, you know, not and sort of ignoring that, when we reanalyze the data, it did not look like, you know, playing a sexist game actually caused uh, decreased empathy, uh, you know, in these, uh, in these adolescents. So, I mean, I think with an issue, you know, like, you know, the portrayal of women in, in games and other media, whether that's movies or television, whatever, I mean, obviously that's, you know, it's been an issue people have been talking about for quite a while. Um, I think it's a legitimate issue. You know, I've advocated myself for, you know, better representations of women or, or female characters uh, in games. And I think, what you know, with an issue like that, we have to keep, 
an eye on there being a difference between the moral advocacy, sort of the idea that this is the right thing to do because, you know, we want to welcome more female, you know, players, more female game developers, you know, and so on and so forth into the field uh, and not be dicks, I guess, you know, kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the right, you know, moral thing to do, but that's different from it having this kind of like causative effect on people's, you know, behavior. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, I think, you know, even Patrick was kind of mentioning like positive effects too, that I, I think it's really hard to make a definitive case for video games having very many clear behavioral effects on people other than they're fun and you know, some people unwind with them and things like that. Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, like, you know, there have been some advocates, like, you know, Anita Sarkeesian is probably one of the most famous, who have made these very eloquent arguments for why, you know, games have these sort of sexist tropes in them, um, which, you know, many games do. Um, and, and I think a lot of those arguments were really, really powerful until they started making causal claims uh, about effects. And I think that's the risk if you have a worthwhile, good-faith advocacy effort. If you start making causal claims about media effects that are, you know, demonstrably untrue, that can do some unintended harm, you know, to your advocacy effort. And that's one of the concerns I, I sort of have about you know, the effort to promote, you know, better representations of female characters, you know, better racial representations for characters in games, and so on and so forth. Those are efforts that I absolutely, you know, support and have been part of, but I do worry about, you know, sort of the unintended consequences of extending that into sort of this causal effect uh, type of a claim. I mean, I think at the end of the day, for a lot of this, what it, it again, what almost all the games research says is it's there's the data. And so we may want the data to go one way or may want it to go the other way, we may be scared if it goes one way. But at the end of the day, we have the data. And right now, there's just not enough data to suggest that you can actually change a person's, you know, like take somebody who's sexist and make them less sexist because they happen to be playing a, a non-sexualized female character in a video game. Um, and so the data is just not there to suggest that that's possible. Um, it would be great if it was, if video games had that kind of power, but it's just not there. Um, and again, though, there might be other reasons why we may... So I have a daughter who plays video games, and she likes to play with female characters. I like video games to be... Female characters to be available in video games simply because my daughter enjoys playing them more, and it makes her feel better when she has a female character and you know can beat up her brother's little male character in the <laughs> game. Um, but it's not necessarily... I mean, at the end of the day, again, they're video games. Uh, for the most part, children are learning their values and morals and, and, and all the other good stuff that goes along from usually their family lives, uh, sometimes their peers. Um, that video games, even though we all love them so much, they're not as powerful as many of us think they are in actually changing who we are fundamentally as people. That when we turn off the console, we're probably the same person, a great person, or as Chris said, a dick, as we were before we turned it on. That they're not changing us in that manner. Ooh, wishful thinking. <laughs> Be super, super nice. Have you had any interaction or feelings about, I guess, Games for Change has been a big thing recently, where they have been trying to use games for, I guess, social or, I guess, positive social change? I'll use that, but... Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a wonderful group and everybody has wonderful ideals, exactly what you're saying. There's nothing wrong with, you know, trying to hit that game. I mean, maybe there will be a game, right? So there's certainly books can change the way we see the world and video games are just another art form. So it could change the way we see snippets of the world, I think. And so I think that can happen. 
Um, now our, our video game is there quite yet. I don't know. Maybe for some people, you know, some people might have played, you know, a game and been moved. Maybe Flower moved in to be more environmentally friendly. Or, you know, I don't know. But there could be. But on the mass level, we're not seeing that kind of change. So, but again, video games are still, as far as mediums go, they're pretty much babies. And so who knows where, you know, the next generation is going to take them. So I don't want to say like it's never going to happen. It's just that it hasn't happened yet on a mass scale. Um, but that does not mean people shouldn't try to make the world a better place. And if we can make the world a better place by playing video games, so much the better. Speaking of the new frontier, I remember you said that you had a VR set in your living room. As, do you have any concerns or do you think anything will come up with the idea of really... I guess intense violence and kind of virtual reality settings. Do you think that will yeah, this, be a different yeah, this, a different yeah. platform? Yeah, and I know Chris has some stuff on this too, but this is definitely something that comes up a lot now. If is VR kind of going to be the next boogeyman, right? So for the most part, most people are getting over video games now. Now it's VR is going to be the next thing, and the argument is it's more immersive, it's more realistic, and so therefore everything's going to have a bigger effect. Now the rub is if we look across time, we've had technology advance so much so so again i said i started playing video games at the atari 2600 and so you know we had blocky guys shooting each other and actually the very first video game study on violence was done on missile command using the atari 2600 and that study found that they claimed that playing missile command increased aggression and so since that time though technology has advanced and graphics have become more realistic everything has become more realistic so the idea is that realism immersion kind of increases negative effects of video games, we should see an increase of effect of video games across time on these lab studies that have been done. And actually, we don't find anything. In fact, if anything, the effect's kind of going down a tiny bit. That So there's really been no change in the effect size that we find. And these are mundane acts of aggression, I should say. We're not talking about violence at any means. So even in mundane acts of aggression, we're not seeing an increase in violence or an increase in aggression as as realism has increased. And so... There's no real reason at this point to expect VR is going to be fundamentally different um, based on the data. Now, that being said, though, there's really not a lot of data to know that for sure. So this is based on previous studies of what has been found. Um, perhaps, I mean, Chris was trying to do research on it. So, I mean, if more research could get done on VR, we might have a better idea for sure. But if I was going to bet, I, was, I would bet that it's probably not going to be any different at all than just plain old video games other than you might get a little nauseated if you're moving around in it. <laughs> that that's probably it. But I don't know. Maybe Chris might have a different take. I'm not sure. No, I think I think I'd agree with you know pretty much what you've said. I mean, I think the the tricky thing about you know this particular question is that there really isn't you know much or any research on VR, particularly with negative outcomes. There's there's some actually with VR with positive outcomes. So they use. VR games for things like stress reduction or PTSD or uh, or other sorts of you know phenomena like that, but for the most part, they really haven't you know done any kind of research with uh, uh, VR and things like aggression or you know uh, other types of mental health or related uh, outcomes. So we don't really know much. You know, as Patrick said, I'm, I'm actually you know in the process of trying to gear my lab up to include some uh, VR. Uh, technology and, and by the way, if there are any listeners who would like to donate to that, maybe we could put my address <laughs> in the comment section somewhere. But um, but uh, you know, and, but it, even with that, I mean, it's going to take a couple years really to sort of get the equipment, get it set up. Um, part of that's because I'm kind of a lazy person, but um, you know, and then actually, like, you know, collect the data, and you know, so it's going to be probably you know, I was even optimistically two to three years before any of that data ever sees you know the light of day. 
and stuff. So, so we're really kind of in a place of saying, I would agree with Patrick's assessment that, you know, we've kind of been to this, like, Muammar Gaddafi line of death thing. Like, you cross this line, you die. Okay, cross this line, you die. Okay, cross this line, you die. You know, where every time we seem to come across this point where people say, well, this is the one, you know, this is the one that's really going to hurt kids. <laughs> Everything else we've told you is a lie. This one is the one, though. You know, so it's, it's enough to make me wary that, you know, we really should at least not leap in and start scaring the crap off of parents about stuff until we have data, given that every other time this has come up, you know, the fears that we've communicated have turned out to be pretty e- e- ephemeral. You know, but that having been said, we don't really know yet. We don't have data, you know, conclusive data to say one way or another um, what types of effects that you know VR may have. I, I think really the fundamental thing, though, is that our brains seem to treat situations we know to be fictional different from situations we know uh, to be real. And so, you know, it, you can get into all these kinds of like you know science fiction type scenarios. But you know, my my best guess is that as long as the person knows that they are playing a fictional game, even in VR things will be okay. On the other hand, you get into science fiction, well, what if you knock them out and you put them into a VR machine and they don't know that they're doing it? Well, that, may, that might be different. You know? <laughs> uh, That's unethical on a total different level. <laughs> uh, so you have a, a wonderful chapter at the end of the book that's geared towards giving advice to parents who, I guess, are worried or are wondering if they should be worried about their child's video game intake. And I was wondering if you had any suggestions for educators who were thinking about using video games in their classroom. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the essence of the advice is probably going to be pretty similar in the sense of, you know, make sure you're making informed, you know, decisions about, you know, what you want to do with a video game uh, in, in the classroom and, you know, being aware that there is a lot of really, you know, bad information, you know, out there that you'll have to sift through, you know, when making these types of decisions. But I think, you know, for educators, it really kind of boils down to knowing what you want the video game to, you know, why are you using it and what, what do you want it to, uh, to do, you know. So, like, I know, like, with my son, you know, he's, he's been in classrooms that have used Minecraft in, in various ways. And, uh, you, you know, I think he, he had one where he learned all about the Underground Railroad, you know, by using Minecraft. At a, you know, and, and I think it's brilliant in a way because, you know, my, my son, you know, doesn't care at all about the underground railroad but he does care about minecraft um you know so in some ways it's you know it's kind of brilliant and it it brings him and other kids into learning about things like history or math that they may otherwise you know consider to be kind of dull or or boring you know or whatever it's not so much that minecraft teaches anything by itself it's that you know used in a certain kind of educational way it can at least hold attention uh for some of these kids but i think too i mean one thing probably for for teachers is you know to consider you know, where might there be objections from, you know, outside in the community? And that may occasionally pop up. Um, and to make sure that, you know, as teachers that they have buy-in from their administrators, you know, uh, and stuff so that they have support in case they face any kind of, um, you know, backlash from some members of the community. What is the plan if some parent says, I absolutely don't want my kid to play Minecraft uh, while he is in school? You know, what, what is a school going to do with that type of situation, um, you know, which sometimes, you know, can pop up? So, you know, being aware of where the pitfalls may be and how the school or the individual teacher is going to respond to those pitfalls, I think is, is, uh, you know, going to be helpful. And if they don't pop up, they don't pop up. And then that, that's fine. 
And I think, and really not for Chris, I mean, it's important to remember that video games are not a magic bullet that are going to, you know, be able to teach everything. That there's something called transfer of learning, which is the basic idea that if you learn something in one situation, you're most likely to kind of recall it or transfer it to another situation that's very similar. So, for example, that's why there's no research that shows playing a first-person shooter actually makes you more accurate with a real gun. I mean, there's a study that came out a few years ago that was completely discredited. It had to be retracted. And so there's absolutely zero research to suggest. And the reason why that is, is because when you play a first person shooter, shooter, you have to pull the left trigger, then you pull the right trigger and you shoot. Whereas shooting a real gun, there's a lot more involved. So you don't really transfer much learning in the video game to the real world. Now, in education, as Chris suggested with Minecraft and learning about the Underground Railroad, there you're transferring information about the Underground Railroad to information about the Underground Railroad. Um, for me, it was, you know, Oregon Trail, learning about the trek out west and, and, you know, the difficulties. And it was a great learning tool to teach me those specifics. Now, I could not take a wagon and go out west now on my own. <laughs> I would certainly die of dysentery, if not something more horrible. And that's because the transfer. And so... Uh, transferring knowledge in the educational standpoint and using games as the means to transfer that knowledge is perfect. That is the greatest way. But as I said, you're not, it's not going to be a catch-all. It's not going to teach them to probably be better citizens. It's probably not going to teach them to, you know, to actually change who they are fundamentally. But it can teach them bits of knowledge that are related to when they have to recall it, those same bits of knowledge. Awesome. So, so what's next for y'all? What are you doing uh, now that this book is out? <laughs> Other than talking about it. <laughs> well, I'm going to have to get back to Assassin's Creed 4. <laughs> I mean, in the video game world, like we're still doing research with um, trying to examine links between other types of real world violence. So, again, we started looking at mass shootings and things of that sort and what kind of effects media can have on those types of things. So. We're still looking at, you know, real world violence um, to see any links. And so far, just like with school shootings, just like with crime waves and so forth, we there isn't anything that seems to be in the data. Um, but just kind of delving into those data sets has been kind of the focus of our lab. Yeah, and I think for me, yeah, I mentioned that you know, we're hoping to update to VR tech, you know, for our lab and, you know, kind of still hitting the same drum for the most part, you know, with aggression and other types of outcomes. But uh you know, in terms of other stuff, I'm, I've also gotten interested in some of the other, you know, kinds of issues with media that people have out there. Like, we're hoping to start up a um, longitudinal study in the fall, most likely, looking at, you know, kind of like building off the whole, like, 13 Reasons Why controversy and looking at, like, suicide-themed media and uh, adolescent depression and suicidal ideation and things like that. Because, you know, there's a lot of speculation about it, you know, but there really is very, very little data um, and what studies exist don't seem to be very high quality uh, so far. So I think that's, again, another area where, you know, the discussion, I think, could be better informed with some better data and some better quality studies out there. Well, are there any, do you have any parting thoughts before we sign off? Um, no, I think, I mean, I think the most important thing is, is just that, again, video games are entertainment. I mean, we can use them to instill knowledge and perhaps in the future, people more clever than my generation will figure out ways to harness the power of video games to actually alter perhaps uh, us for the better. Um, but at this point, it's not there, that they're not destroying our society. They're not responsible for school shootings. They're not responsible for acts of violence that we can find anywhere in data. There's absolutely no data 
to suggest links between real world violence and vi violent video games. Um, that even, but also on the other end too, there's really no data to suggest that they can playing brain games is not going to make us smarter. It's not going to um, stem off, you know, Alzheimer's or anything along those lines. That they're entertainment for most of us. They're entertainment, just like books, just like movies, and so forth. Um, it just might be a particular entertainment that different people choose to partake in uh, than movies or books. But at the end of the day, that's what they are. And so they can change our emotions temporarily. They can make us sad. They can make us excited. They can make us a little angry. But just like when you see a sad movie after you leave the theater, the sadness goes away and you become the same person as you were before. Playing a violent video game, you might get a little angry afterward, but over time that emotion just ebbs away and you just become the same person you were before. Um, and it's kind of boring, but that's kind of what the research suggests at this point of what video games are. I, I like it. We should make the headline of this episode like video games do not do anything interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Except entertain you, which is very important. <laughs> I, I do think I do think we overlook the importance of just being entertained and having fun and playing. And that's what they do. So it's not that they don't do anything, I guess. That's probably not the right way to say it. Um, it's that they do those things that they're designed to do. They entertain us. And which is, in this world, in our life, it's extremely important to be entertained. And that's what they give us. I love that um, that idea. I've been advocating recently for the importance of of not doing things that are productive necessarily in the traditional sense of the word productive and kind of advocating that the value of something be in the fact that it is just fun. <laughs> it passes the time in an enjoyable way and that is meaningful. Yeah, to still a quote, time you enjoy wasting is not wasted time. And so <laughs> That's a good quote. I like that one. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was just going to say that if you, if you really want people to, to, to click on the link to you know listen to this podcast, it really should have a headline like, you know, hardcore pornography discovered in Pac-Man or something like that. You know, uh, that'll get people. Then you, then you could go, you know, start not really, you know. But here's what we're really going to talk about <laughs> is a bunch of other stuff. Um, and, I, and I think that, you know, even that's kind of I'm saying as a jokey kind of thing. I, mean, I think that, you know, it probably helps just to remember that, you know, a lot of this really does boil down to sort of typical generational debates about media and, you know, whether we should all still be listening to jazz or if it's okay to listen to rock or rap or, you know, uh, heavy metal to, you know, today and, and I think a lot of the misunderstandings that like parents and grandparents have is they see their kids doing an activity that they themselves don't want to do and they don't value that activity and so they assume that if my kid is playing you know uh, a video game for multiple hours of a day, then that's got to be an addiction because why would anybody want to do that unless they were addicted? And it's got to be rotting his brain and so on and so forth and why isn't he doing homework or running outside looking at trees not that anybody ever did this ever in history, but, you know, there's kind of this idea that there's some sort of ideal thing children should be spending their time doing, and video games is not that thing. And, and I think that that divide between generations in terms of valuing a particular form of media is oftentimes the source of these misunderstandings about what media do or do not do uh, in the lives of youth. Thank you so much for coming on. I look forward to seeing kind of the future of this research <laughs> and the debunking of some of these uh these media headlines that like capture our attention well thanks for having us yeah it's great being on 